The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today's Thursday, so it's time for the regular weekly visit of my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? I am, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, today we're going to continue with part five of Peter's series on the real story behind the bad war by M.S. King. But before we dive into that, Peter's got some interesting news from South Africa. So where would you like to start us off with this, uh, Peter? Yes. Well, Andrew, you know, uh, 30 years ago, I launched Africa Christian Action, which is the largest, most active pro-life ministry in South Africa. It tackles more than pro-life. It, it deals with a pro-life, pro-family, as uh, the slogan says, on the front lines for the battle for faith, family, the future. And we are leading and organizing around the country the life chains, the marches for life, Sanctity Life Sunday, various outreaches, submissions to parliament, tackling different laws that threaten us, uh, everything from promoting home education to opposing state curriculum that is promoting the LGBTQ. So we've produced books like Rise of the Gay GB and the Pink Inquisition and Pandemic, uh, How the Pornography Plague Affects You and Your Family and What You Can Do to Stop It, and uh, Biblical Principles for Africa, Fight for Life, Make a Difference, Christian Action Handbook for South Africa. So African Christian Action's been very busy and active, and I sort of part-time help uh, with that. And our big event of the year in many ways uh, is the life chain. It's an international event, uh, the first Sunday in October. We do a, a pro-life protest at the busiest intersection in Cape Town, very busy intersection, sandwiched between the Cape Town International Conference Center on one side and the waterfront on the other. There's multi-laned highways uh, passing around. There's this huge, m- massive traffic island, which we line with people with posters and placards and banners and uh, all the rest of it. And uh, this uh, last Sunday... For the first time ever, uh, we had uh, a massive police presence and harassment and interference. And it was quite extraordinary because in 30 years of pro-life ministry in South Africa, we've never before had any problem with the police. And suddenly <laughs> we have um, traffic police, the South African Police Service, which is the one to deal with criminal activities, uh, the Metro Police, the Metropolitan Police Service, three different police services and other security people turning up 
in mass with huge amounts of vehicles. In fact, a large part of our busiest part was of our life chain was obscured for the whole two hours with traffic vehicles with the blue lights on and so on, parked directly in front of our people so that the passers-by couldn't see the placards. And along comes this officer uh, who tells us that what we're doing is illegal. I produced our permit uh, from the city of Cape Town who had been formed. I mean, this is an annual event. And um, uh, he was uh, not too impressed with that. Uh, he knew we, were, we, we had the permit, in fact, by law in South Africa, you don't need a permit to have a protest. Um, the Constitution is very clear in the Bill of Rights that everyone has the right to peacefully assemble, demonstrate, to picket and present petitions. That's Section 17 and Section 16. Everyone has the right to freedom of expression, which includes freedom of the press and other media, freedom to receive or impart information or ideas, and freedom of artistic creativity which is exactly what we're doing with our banners, posters, flags, placards, and so on, and our literature distribution. Well, he suddenly informs me that, no, you've got to take all your banners and placards down uh, over the pedestrian walkway that's uh, above the uh, traffic because it could distract motorists. Well, I said for 30 years of conducting pro-life events, um, no accidents have ever occurred at any of our life chain events, and... There's billboards, advertising posters and lampposts. There's all manner of potentially distracting advertisements on the side of buildings and trucks. Any good motorist must not allow himself to be distracted by these things. But are you going to forbid all advertising and posters? How did this suddenly happen today on our life chain with our pro-life posters? Why are they being singled out? Which are only up here for two hours, by the way. Uh, but we're not distracting motorists to driving. This is a busy intersection. And while the vehicles are stationary, they can clearly see the messages that we're communicating from these banners and posters. Uh, it's a busy intersection, multi-phased, and therefore is lots of time traffic uh, for them to see these posters while stationary. Well, he said, I'm not interested in debating with you. <laughs> no, it's, don't confuse me with the facts. Um, and he's instructing us right now uh, to stop all of our literature distribution, take down our placards and posters, um, uh, or he will hold the convener criminally liable. Uh, so I said, well, this is extraordinary because for over 30 years, we've been distributing literature at traffic lights without any problem. And every day of the week throughout South Africa, their marketing teams, hawkers and others, frequently distributing literature at traffic lights. That's very common in South Africa. It's not as bad as Nigeria, where they're selling you absolutely everything at traffic lights. Uh, <laughs> you can buy, uh, you name it, at a Nigerian traffic light. But in South Africa, there's literature being distributed and so on. That, that's very common. And uh, it's never been suggested to be illegal. And we know that it isn't because we've done this for 30 years, uh, even outside Parliament, and no one's ever suggested there's something wrong with it. Well, he says, I'm not interested in debate. And uh, he refused to talk to me and instructed us to stop, cease and desist. Well, this kind of harassment, uh, you can be sure we we did not give in to this uh, bullying and this pressure and I've uh, given complaints, official complaints to political representatives to look into this and investigate why we had this traffic officer interfering with a lawful, peaceful assembly for an international pro-life event, which is held every year at the same time and same place after 30 years of our excellent track record. In fact, we have never thrown a stone. We have never broken glass. We've never damaged property. In fact, we don't even leave a litter behind. More than that, 
we task people at each of our events to put on plastic gloves and take a dustbin bag and pick up litter so that we leave the place better than we found it. I mean, it's something that we've done on quite a lot of our street outreaches that amongst the people doing litter distribution, we also always have one or two people tasked for picking up litter. And I've sometimes picked up as much as um, uh, two big bags of or massive plastic bags of, of litter uh, during outreaches that we've done in Seapoint, for example, or uh, downtown Cape Town. And so, and we were doing this here too. So far from damaging or causing problems, which by the way, the police don't deal with, when you've got rampaging our BLM type rights here, done the name of the EFF, burning, looting, murdering BLM, uh, that sort of thing, the police stand by and do nothing. Uh, looting shops, warehouses, burning things down, police stand by and do nothing. But they can bully a group of pro-lifers, which included people in wheelchairs, mothers um, pushing pram with the babies. I mean, it's a total family event. And uh, these are pillars of society, uh, homeschoolers and so on. And uh, here you've got this colossal police turnout presence of multiplicity of, of uniformed law enforcement people descending on a group of pro-lifers at an annual pro-life event. It just shows you the kind of bizarre situation we've uh, reached right now, where the police are generally speaking not dealing with real crime, but they're criminalizing what was always lawful endeavors. And one wonders, what is going on now? Is it a hate crime to be saying, and let me just read some of the messages on our colorful posters and banners. Abortion is the ultimate child abuse. A person is a person no matter how small. Compassion is always an option. Abortion kills babies. Take my life, take my hand, not my life. And we've got abortion is murder. Abortion is the national sin. God will not bless a country which kills its own babies. Life begins at conception. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Abortion does not make you unpregnant, but makes you the mother of a dead baby. In God's court, abortion is murder. That's the one I was actually holding. And maybe <laughs> that aggravates at this particular traffic officer. But apparently now, free speech is hate speech. Back to you, Andrew. Indeed it is. And we're seeing the world over that um, from about 20 years ago, the police force, rather than um, going out and about to prevent crime. And I'm trying to think of who I was listening to who was telling me this. I remember I was crossing the road as I heard this yesterday on the show, but I listened to so many, it might come to me. Um, we're in a situation that uh, they used to go... Yeah, that was right. It was a guy called Peter Hitchens, and uh, you probably heard of him. Uh, I don't know if he was the yes. one that was a, a real atheist or that was his brother. I, I get the two confused. But he was being interviewed on talk radio and Richie Allen was playing it on his show. And he was saying... So this was out in the UK. He was saying that, um, you know, 20-odd years ago, the police were on the streets to prevent crime. Their job was to prevent crime. Uh, but now they wait for crime to happen... And they're also just increasingly politicised as a force. So essentially, you're in a situation now where the police are, are just a political force uh, when they were supposed to be apolitical. I remember when I was in the police, um, started in, well, October, I think, 2002. So we're going back 19 years. And we were told that you couldn't even voice a political opinion. If you said that I'm a Conservative Party supporter, 
then that was an offence because you have to be apolitical. But now they're just woke political. Um, and we're told all these different offences that they no longer have the time to investigate, yet they have the time and the resources to spray up patrol cars in LGBTQ rainbow livery, which I've seen several times. Uh, and, and, you know, it, they're just literally... This, this was a plan that they were going to become a tool. They were going to become the stormtroopers of this new agenda, which includes the lockdowns, which includes you know, forcing people to mask up and, you know, inevitably will probably lead to forcing people to take vaccines that are incredibly dangerous, that the, the, the deaths and the, the people injured uh, grow every week in the UK alone. But they don't want to talk about that, and the government doesn't want to talk about that. So we have been under tyranny worldwide uh, for a long time, but it's become increasingly overt in the last, you know, couple of decades, and especially in the last year or so. Peter, back to you. Yes, uh, well, this is the thing. Either the state will exercise the wrath of God against sin and lawlessness, or it'll exercise the wrath of man against God and against his people and his laws. And I think the thing that we're learning these days is there is no neutrality. We're in a world war of worldviews. We're in a clash of civilization. There's a battle between truth and lies, between information and disinformation and propaganda. Uh, we are involved in... You know, there are more and more you can see the world's getting polarized into those who are radical, uh, revolutionary type atheists and Marxists, and those who stand for traditional family, uh, marriage, society, law and order. Uh, there's no longer any neutrality. You can't just sit in the fence and say, I don't want to get involved, because even the people who, the most mind you and business people, are getting hammered on in the name of fighting a virus. And being told, you know, you've got to wear this mask and you've got to do that and you can't operate your business and you can't travel here and you need to get this vaccine shoved into your body whether you want to or not. And so uh, more and more you see there's no room for apathy. There's no room for complacency. There's no room for neutrality. Uh, neutrality is actually a myth. Uh, we are on one side or the other. And uh, I think the call that was is made continually in the Bible, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And whoever's not for me is against me. Whoever's not gathering is scattering, Jesus said. Uh, we, we've got to make a choice. We cannot just sit in the sidelines and we are losing all of our freedoms. And if we don't stand up and resist, there'll be no freedoms left. Back to Andrew. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, this is crunch time. I think this is the end game that uh, they've had planned for, for many, many years. I think that they'd like to have got there earlier than they did. Um, but of course now they've got uh, the technology to to do so and funnily enough recently I've been watching I'm going to get into this in a future show when I finish watching it but um, one of my favourite ad actors is Edward Woodward who's best known for the programme Callan and uh, in the UK and then The Equaliser in America but he did a series in the late 1970s that's only recently been able to be released on DVD uh, 77 and I think 78 he did it so I was too young to watch it first time round. It's called 1919. On the front cover, it says 1984 plus six. Um, he's a journalist in the UK, and he's fighting for freedom of speech and all that. And you've got the public control department that go to people's houses and harass people, and you know all sorts of horrible things happen. It's it's not particularly violent, so it's um, you know it's not harrowing to watch. But the psychological aspect of it, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a woman whose husband is a judge 
and the judges are told that they can only rule in favour of appeals against the state uh, on an average of 2% of cases. So the state basically always gets their way, but you know throws a sort of little crumb out to people to try and show that there is some sort of um, you know balance there. Um, because her husband keeps ruling against it, they find out that she couldn't have... Ch- she miscarried a couple of times. Um, and um, she... Uh, bought a dog with her husband because she, you know, couldn't face the prospect of, you know, keep losing these children. And so then they say, oh, the dog just bit one of our officers and then they take the dog away and say, we're going to put it down and stuff like that, when, of course, it all didn't happen. But this is the sort of terror that they... This is a fictional account. But when I was watching it, it really sent me thinking that this is so, you know relevant to what we're seeing today this is what they're going to be doing to people you say this we'll we'll just make it all up in the in the uh, Bilderberg conference I think the 2018 one the last topic discussed was the post-truth world they knew exactly what was coming they know that they can't beat us by debate because they're the cheats the liars the crooks the thieves and the murderers and we are out there spreading the truth and so the only way that they can do it because they don't want uh, they want to get away with what they're doing. They know that they're wrong. They know that they're evil. But the only way that they can deal with it is to silence us. Because if we and our message was out uh, with the same reach as like a Daily Mail or what have you, these people will be stopped in their tracks overnight. So it's a constant battle for them to shut us up. We've got the truth on our side. They've got lies on theirs. And we need to stand by our truth, Peter. Back to you. Yes, we do. We do indeed. Which is why this uh, book by M. S. King, The Bad War, The Truth Never Taught About World War II, is so important because if we don't understand the history that led us to the position that we are now, then how are we going to rectify our situation or get out of it? Uh, Lies always bring bondage, and uh, the truth always brings light and freedom. And so, as the Bible says, you will know the truth, and truth will set you free. And Jesus is the ultimate truth, and the Word of God is truth. But we can also see in history when we can sift out the truth from the lies, it empowers us because it's not the uh, it's not the known truth that that actually enslaves people. It's the forgotten truth or the hidden truth that uh, binds people. And it's so important to get out of this bondage that we're in. And I think it's extremely helpful to get a refreshing, different perspective, bring out facts that have been suppressed uh, in order to understand certainly the most influential event that led to the world being in the state that it's in now. Uh, an understanding of the Second World War is key. And so we're grateful for the bad war. The truth never taught about World War II. So what we're dealing with in these programs is really bring out things that are uh, generally either hidden or ignored. So um, we, we're right here in Section 5 of the bad war. The truth never taught about World War II by M.S. King. And... 1939, uh, August the 25th, and Britain uh, and Poland form a military alliance, which is the first time Poland and Britain had ever had a military alliance, and it hadn't even been asked for, and this built on the the previous um, unsought-for unilateral war guarantee given by Britain to Poland in March 1939, which was unprecedented in British or any other history. The country had given a unilateral, one-sided, asking nothing in return Um, war guarantee, which guaranteed war. And uh, Chamberlain, the actual Neville Chamberlain being the Prime Minister of Britain at that time, was manipulated into this British-Poland pact. And speaking to the American ambassador, Joseph Kennedy, 
um, he said America and the world Jews had forced England into this war. And so Chamberlain was outmaneuvered, frustrated, and uh, there were all kinds of border provocations being done by Marshal Edward Sides Smigley, uh, who's the Polish head of state at this time, uh, who had fortunately had abandoned his predecessor's excellent uh, relationship with Germany and was actually uh, quite a saber rattler causing grief. And so emboldened by Britain, France, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt of America, uh, Poland now uh, knew that they could do anything they liked because uh, Germany was uh, being hindered by these great powers, France, Britain, and America, uh, from um, in any way intervening in Poland or they would risk war. And uh, so Poland starts to really take out their hostility on the Germans, the millions of Germans living in Polish control that had been given to them by the Versailles Treaty. And so um, Adolf Hitler writes a letter, an open letter to the president of France, my dear minister president. And uh, he uh, puts there, uh, very nicely written, I understand the misgivings to which you give expression. I too have never overlooked the grave responsibilities that are imposed upon those who are in charge of the fate of nations. As an old frontline fighter, I, like you, know the horrors of war. Guided by this attitude and experience, I've tried to remove all matters that might cause conflict between our two peoples. As you could judge for yourself during your last visit here, the German people, in the knowledge of its own behavior, held and holds no ill feelings, much less any hatred for its one-time brave opponents. On the contrary, the pacification of our Western frontier leads to an increasing sympathy. I am deeply convinced that if especially England at that time had, instead of starting a wild propaganda campaign against Germany in the press, instead of launching rumors of a German mobilization, Summer had talked the Poles into being reasonable. Europe today and for 25 years could enjoy a condition of deepest peace. As things were, Polish public opinion was excited about a lie about German aggression. And the Polish government declined our proposals. And Polish public opinion, convinced that England and France would now fight for Poland, began to make demands that you might possibly stigmatize as laughable insanity with the not so dangerously, uh, tremendously dangerous. At that point, an unbearable terror, a physical economic persecution of Germans, although they numbered more than a million and a half, began in the region ceded by the Reich to Poland. May I now take the liberty of putting a question to you here, Daladier. How would you as a Frenchman act if, through some unhappy issue of a brave struggle, one of your provinces was severed by a corridor occupied by foreign power? And if a big city, let us say Marseille, were hindered from belonging to France, and a Frenchman living in this area persecuted, beaten, and maltreated, yes, murdered, in a bestial manner. I see no way of persuading Poland, which feels itself now unassailable, that she enjoys the protection of her guarantees to accept any peaceful solution. If our two countries in that account should be destined to meet again on the field of battle, there would nonetheless be a difference in the motives. I shall be leading my people in the fight to rectify our wrong, whereas the others would be fighting to preserve that wrong. And so that is a letter, an open letter to the president of France by the German Chancellor Adolf Hitler at the time. And here's a quote from William Joyce. And William Joyce is an Irishman who defected to Germany. And he reported that German men and women were hunted like wild beasts through the streets of Bromberg in Poland. When they were caught, they were mutilated, torn to pieces by the Polish mobs. Every day the butchery increased. 
thousands of Germans fled from the holes in Poland with nothing more than the clothes they wore. And so on the nights of the 25th of August to the 31st of August, there were many attacks, he says, innumerable attacks on German civilians in Poland and 44 perfectly authenticated acts of armed violence against German official persons and property. And this led to the declaration of war on the 1st of September against Poland. Uh, of course, these facts are left out. So overestimating their strength and underestimating the German strength and believing that France and Britain would actually now support them as they had promised, Marshal Smigli allowed Polish-Jewish partisans to cross the border to attack a German radio station in, uh, in Germany, which was just the latest in a string of deliberate border instigations against Germany. And these Poles broadcast in Polish, urging others to take up arms and start killing Germans. And the German police arrived at the police station, retook the police station, killing one of them. And these communist terrorists, uh, protected by the Polish government, uh, had picked a fight with Germany. Now, there are modern fake historians who claim that the Gleiwicz radio incident was staged by the Germans dressed as Polish terrorists, as in the case of the Reichstag fire conspiracy theory, they claim it's a false flag, but offer no evidence to support this often repeated lie. And uh, this theory has no foundation other than a forced confession obtained after the war of someone tortured, uh, but it ignores the outrageous repeated pattern of provocations directed against Germany ever since 1933 and the border incidents which caused real problems and the refusal to negotiate at all concerning the Danzig Corridor and uh, the control of Danzig. So uh, here's a man, George H. from Ohio, um, a, an American who lived in Germany. He says, I lived in Germany during the 1980s when many people who lived during the war were still alive. I sought out anyone who lived near Poland in 1939, and I was lucky enough to meet several people. One was a customs official who said it was so bad on the border, they were armed and had grenades in the office ready for attacks. Another told me his farm animals were often stolen by Polish terrorists. Another told of his niece being raped by a Polish Jew who crossed the border. He told me in 1940, they caught the man and showed me a copy of the death order signed by Heinrich in which he ordered this man to be put to death. This is just one of the many stories told to me by German civilians who witnessed these border incursions, just like they happened in 1919 to 1928. One thing many people fail to see is that Poland actually did openly attack Germany right after World War I, and Lithuania, and Ukraine, and uh, Czechoslovakia, which led to many border battles. And so once Germany started to pressure Poland to work out a solution on the corridor, these attacks start again. It is clear to me that Germany did not make up these attacks. Now, that's an American citizen uh, from Ohio who was in the area at the time and and afterwards who who uh, got eyewitness testimonies. So the German army on September the 1st, 1939, moved eastwards and forced the Polish forces to withdraw rapidly. And uh, they saw themselves as coming to rescue their citizens who were being murdered in Poland. Now, uh, here's a quote from... British uh, Duke Arthur Wellesley, the fifth Duke of Wellington, who is the great-grandson of the famous Duke of Wellington, who had actually defeated Napoleon, 
And uh, this uh, Arthur Wellesley said that this declaration of war is the fault of the anti-appeasers and the Jews. So that's not a quote you'll see in average uh, book, but uh, there were thousands of British nobles, uh, leaders, members of parliament, generals, admirals, and others who opposed the war with Germany and were detained uh, by uh, Winston Churchill when he became prime minister, including members of the royal family, uh, including members of parliament and members of the House of Lords, including members of the armed forces, even generals and admirals. So there was a huge amount of British opposition to the war against Germany. Uh, and many of these said that they saw themselves as just being pushed into this, manipulated by bankers and by uh, a global Zionist agenda, which had nothing to do with British national interests. And so with the Polish army being routed by the advancing Germans, Stalin broke the Soviet-Polish non-aggression pact in 1932 and stabbed Poland in the back as Soviet forces poured in from the east. And the advancing communists carried out massacres, the worst being, of course, the Katan Forest Massacre, in which tens of thousands of Polish army officers and NCOs and intellectuals were shot in the head in buried in mass graves near Smolensk in Russia. So other than the pre-Versailles German areas which Germany reclaimed, the Soviets eventually took all of Poland. And in a shocking double standard, all anti-German Franklin Delano Roosevelt, France and the United Kingdom remained completely silent about the brutal Soviet aggression. Now, if they were concerned for Poland, you would have thought they would have been concerned about those who attacked Poland, including the Soviet Union, who in fact took more of Poland than even Germany did. So when Poland appealed to Britain for help, citing the Poland-British Defence Pact just signed a few weeks ago, the Polish ambassador in London contacted the British Foreign Office, pointing out the clause which concerned an aggression by a European power on Poland, that this should also apply to the Soviet invasion. The UK Foreign Secretary responded with hostility that Britain's decision on whether to declare war on the Soviet Union was entirely in the hands of the British government and it was not uh, to be determined by Poland. And uh, they did not believe that uh, it was in the interest to uh, condemn Soviet Union's action or to declare war on Soviet Union. So Poland was uh, astounded because here they had an agreement, a Polish-British defense pact signed uh, at the end of August, that if they were attacked by any European power, Britain would respond with a declaration of war against that country and come to military aid. But the fact is, Britain didn't send, neither did France or America, a single bullet, bomb or bandage to Poland. Poland was just abandoned and obviously didn't care about them at all. And so the ultra-nationalist leader, who shamelessly abandoned his troops and fled to Romania, um, really, uh, he betrayed his people. And next thing, his entire leadership force, all of the officers and NCOs of the Polish army who were captured on the Soviet side, were put to death in cold blood the Katyn Forest Massacre, which for decades was blamed on Germany, even though their graves were in Smolensk, which is very far inside the Soviet Union. Uh, and the evidence was huge. And even now the Russian government owned up, hand over the papers and after decades of lying. And even the school textbook I studied uh, at school in Rhodesia stated that the Germans killed the Polish officers at Katyn, which everyone knew was a lie at that time. And in fact, the Polish 
leader of the government in exile, General Sikorsky, was in fact murdered on the 4th of July 1943 uh, when he was demanding an investigation into the uh, Katan Forest massacre. The phone records between John F. Kennedy, uh, between Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I should say, and Winston Churchill in the month preceding that assassination um, have all been sealed uh, and they're still sealed and haven't been opened yet. So obviously something's being hidden. And so Adolf Hitler addressed the people in Danzig. He arrived in Danzig almost immediately. He said, no power on earth would have borne this condition as long as Germany. I do not know what England would have said about a similar peace solution like Versailles at its own expense or how America France could have accepted it. I attempted to find a tolerable negotiated solution even for this problem. I submitted this attempt to the Polish rulers and verbal proposals. You know these proposals. They were more than moderate. I do not know what mental condition the Polish government was in when it refused these proposals. As an answer, Poland gave the order for mobilization before we did. Thereupon, while terror was initiated on our people and my request to the Polish foreign minister to visit me in Berlin once more to discuss these questions was refused. Instead of going to Berlin, he went to London. And then he rightly mocked Smigley as a coward, saying the Polish marshal, who miserably deserted his armies, said he would hack the German army to pieces. Well, of course, he failed to do that. Uh, but extraordinary that this Polish leader actually abandoned his forces and did not stay with them. Shocking. Well, the German-Polish war came to an end very quickly. The world saw its first blitzkrieg, lightning war, and... The Allies had never had any intention, apparently, of helping Poland. They never moved a muscle to help them. In fact, uh, they were meant to provide uh, a second front on Germany, but they did not. They got to the border, and aside from the French army invading Germany on September the 7th, advancing eight kilometers before stopping, this quiet period before the end of the Polish War until May 1940 was dubbed the phony war, uh, but it was a real war at sea, and there was already an aerial bombardment starting of German naval places. Uh, but during this time, Hitler pleaded for the Allies to withdraw their declarations of war, and he said to France, I've always expressed to France my desire to bury forever our ancient enmity and bring together our two nations, both of which have such glorious pasts. And to Britain, Hitler said, I've devoted no less effort to the achievement of Anglo-German friendship. At no time and in no place have I ever acted contrary to British interests. Why should this war in the West be fought? And so the German army stood firm on the Western Front and did not move or do any hostile actions towards the British. And they were pleased for peace. But the Allies mobilized more than two million troops in northern France. And they were openly discussing an advance eastwards upon Germany via neutral Belgium and Holland, who were apparently not that neutral because they were involved with uh, war preparations with France and Britain, and uh, there were really French uh, officers in Belgium discussing mutual defence pacts and so on. And now Britain planned to invade Poland, uh, Norway and Denmark and uh, to use that to prevent Germany receiving uh, its uh, iron and steel, which is, of course, critical for its uh, war effort and industry. Now, America in 1939 is meant to be neutral. But November the 4th, 1939, Franklin Delano Roosevelt had the Neutrality Act uh, rescinded, repealed. 
Now, the Neutrality Acts prohibited the United States from selling any weapons of war to any warring nations. The Purposes Act, which prevents America from ever again being involved in Europe's wars. And throughout the 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his Zionist advisor, Bernard Baruch, who had also been an advisor to Woodrow Wilson, anticipated a new war against Germany. And so let's start in the 1930s already to uh, try to amend the previous Neutrality Acts um, unsuccessfully at first, but in November 1939, they finally got rid of the original Neutrality Act and passed a new one, which was a sham, because it allowed the sale of arms to the United Kingdom. And the scheming FDR took a huge step towards involving America in a war that his globalist handlers had, of course, been agitating for. And so here you can see huge amounts of um, propaganda in the media speaking about neutrality acts repealed. We deliver arms to those fighting aggression. So uh, the whole purpose of neutrality act is sites used. They use uh, the term neutrality, but in fact, they were active participants in the war already. And in fact, had been scheming for it, as is documented by Freedom Betrayed, the secret history by President Herbert Hoover of America's involvement in World War II and its aftermath. So just two months after swallowing most of Poland, Stalin launched an invasion of Finland. Now, he had another non-aggression pact, 1932, that he's now violated. 1932, he had a, a Soviet-Finnish non-aggression pact. Well, he broke that pact, of course. You know, um, treaty is all like pie crusts made to be broken, uh, said Stalin. And um, uh, certainly he had a massive invasion, 21 Soviet divisions, 450,000 Red Army troops, all concentrated on invading Poland and expecting to overwhelm Finland in a matter of weeks and install a government of Finnish communists who are waiting in Moscow. But the brave outnumbered Finns, sharpshooters on skis, staged a heroic defense of their homeland. And the Winter War was a severe embarrassment for Stalin because by the following March 1940, um, a peace treaty was signed, and while the Finns were forced to give up some territory, the integrity of uh, most of Finland was secure. And uh, the international community verbally condemned the Soviet invasion of Finland, but didn't do anything beyond a few economic gestures. But again, no boycotts of Soviet Union, no declaration of war against Soviet Union like they'd been on Germany. So double standards. Um, we then see April 9th, 1940, Britain is preparing to move into Norway. And unfortunately for the British, uh, Winston Churchill uh, inadvisedly uh, dropped the, the ball by speaking about this in public areas. And so the words came to the Germans that the, the British were planning to invade Norway. And so very quickly, uh, Operation Wilfred and Plan R4 were launched. And uh, this plan uh, was to prevent the British from taking the uh, ports of Norway and preventing iron ore from Sweden from being brought into Britain. And so the British were coming to illegally mine the Norwegian waters uh, to prevent ships carrying uh, any of the ore supplies to Germany. They were also planning to seize a whole lot of key harbors and ports in, in Narvik, for example, and uh, throughout Norway. So a Norwegian politician called Vidkun Quisling confirmed the existence of Allied plots and sympathetic to 
Germany and not wanting his country to become a battlefield, Quisling informed Hitler of the Anglo-French plot to wage war from these two Scandinavian countries. And as a result, Germany quickly moved, secured the Norwegian port of Narvik just before the British could place their mines and also to occupy Denmark before the British could get there. And so the uh, British uh, diplomats were outmaneuvered. The German diplomats assured both Scandinavian nations that Germany didn't seek conquest, didn't seek to interfere in the internal affairs. This was merely to protect them uh, from uh, coming under British and French control and to secure the integrity of Europe. So life under this very limited German occupation went on quietly. All Norwegian and Polish soldiers who had been captured in the war were set free almost immediately uh, to integrate back into normal life. Uh, there was uh, no uh, harsh repression on the people. And while the word quisling is now in the dictionary of the English language synonymous with traitor, it seems an unfair characterization, says M.S. King in The Bad War. And so the British invasion of neutral, tiny Iceland on May the 10th, the same day the Churchill came to power, called Operation Fork, was actually quite outrageous. The British troops disembarked in this neutral country, capital city of Reykjavik, and moved to disable communications networks, secured landing locations. And while the government of Iceland protested the violation of the neutrality, it was to no avail. And the British built up 25,000 troops occupying Iceland. Now, I don't know how many people have even heard of this, but why would Britain want to take Iceland, which is sort of in the middle of the Atlantic, so to speak? Uh, well, the only possible good reason would be as a base of operations to assist American uh, naval operations to the support of both England and to the Soviet Union by going up uh, to the uh, top of Russia over, the, over Norway in order to uh, supply the Red Army, as they did uh, throughout the whole time of Operation Barbarossa, getting to Mimansk, uh ice-free port. Well, this uh, just showed that there was no respect for neutral countries, just as the plan to invade Belgium and Netherlands uh, had been part of the Allied plans. Uh, so the plans to invade Denmark and Norway, uh, so now they take Iceland. And of course, later they will take Persia or Iran as well in order to uh, just have an easier way to be able to truck and uh, rail in aid to Stalin's Soviet Union under the so-called Lend-Lease. Well, very soon, um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, sent... 30,000 U.S. troops to relieve the British uh, and occupy Iceland in the spring of 1941, which doesn't seem very neutral at all uh, when Britain can not only take Iceland, but then America can take it over from them. With the preparations for war in place, the reluctant Prime Minister of Britain, Neville Chamberlain, was finally pushed aside as the, as to quote M.S. King, the lunatic drunken cigar stomped chomping Winston Churchill takes his place. Churchill's record of treason already included World War II sinking of the Lusitania when he was first Lord Admiralty. And Churchill and his wealthy London and New York Zionist bankers had been advocating for war with Germany for the previous six years. And I was warmongering had made him an outcast in British politics. But with the press of Britain misrepresenting the facts, Churchill was portrayed as some kind of wise prophet from the wilderness and Hitler knew very well who Churchill was and who he worked for. And he even referred to 
Churchill in past speeches as part of Britain's government of tomorrow. And with Chamberlain gone, Churchill in power, Hitler knew for certain the phony war was about to become very real. And so here's another forbidden history quote. It is from Bernard Baruch. I emphasized that the defeat of Germany and Japan and the elimination from world trade would give Britain a tremendous opportunity to swell her foreign commerce in both volume and profit. Well, gee, so it's not altruistic motives after all. They're just after profit and eliminating competitors is the way it's put by Bernard Baruch, key advisor to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Well, Hitler's pleas for peace was ignored. 400,000 British, 2 million French troops massed in northern France. This massive invasion of Germany's industrial region had to come through the ostensibly neutral um, Netherlands and Belgium, whose governments were under intense Allied pressure to allow safe passage for the planned Allied attack on the bordering Ruhr region, which is, of course, Germany's industrial region, which was vulnerable. So uh, Germany's hand was forced. And on the same day that Churchill came to power and Britain invaded Iceland, as an act of national defense, Germany took the fight to the Allies before they could bring it to the German soil and reinstitute a second Versailles Treaty. So a stunning advance westwards, the German Blitzkrieg overtook the low countries uh, of Belgium and Netherlands. Allied armies were in full retreat towards the beaches of northern France. And uh, the Blitz um, was described in the Zionist press as the Nazi conquest of Holland, Belgium and France. But of course, there was never any intention to conquer far less to occupy it just to neutralize the military threat on Germany, which, which was real. And there was all kinds of uh, intrigue. And after the invasion, German government published Allied Intrigue in the Low Countries, 50-page English language paper detailing the full extent of Belgian and Dutch cooperation with the Allies. And so plainly, they were not neutral at that time. And uh, this is, again, forbidden information that you're not meant to know or ask about. On the 10th of May also, the Allies bombed a German town of Freiburg, 20 children killed in a playground, amongst many others, 50 civilians killed. So Churchill start, wasted no time. Uh, first day in office as prime minister, he is ordering the RAF to bomb civilians in Germany, such as the German town of Freiburg, which is not even strategic. It's a medieval town. And uh, first bombing of civilians in World War II. And to whitewash this horrific deed from the page of history and to maintain the historic myth uh, that Germany was the aggressor, court historians have perpetrated the lie that the Germans accidentally bombed their own town and blamed the event on allies to cover up their mistake. But in fact, uh, all the evidence came out that this was chosen by the allies to try and provoke German countermeasures. Well, May 1940, after defeating the French and the British uh, forces, Hitler via a Swedish third party proposed generous peace terms to Britain and contact the British ambassador in Sweden, Victor Mallet through the Swedish Supreme Court judge, Eckbird, who is known to Hitler's legal advisor, Ludwig Weisenau. And so these were serious proposals where Germany proposed and demanded nothing of Great Britain, uh, except for stopping bombing and uh, naval blockade, but wanted no territory, wanted no concessions, just uh, wanted the states uh, that, um, that were currently occupied with Germany would be 
withdrawn from if Britain would stop uh, the aerial bombardment and the naval blockade. And as Germany's occupation was only due to present war situation, the moment the war is ended, they will withdraw. But Winston Churchill was not interested in peace. This offer went nowhere. And there were 16 such peace offers made. And uh, there were many other times where the British war cabinet considered seriously uh, peace with Germany. Uh, Lord Halifax in particular, if he had been British Prime Minister, uh, the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, was very um, uh, eager to accept the generous German offers. And so the Italians now uh, were interested in getting involved in the war because they could see Germany as winning. And uh, as a result, uh, the Italians declared war on France when France's defeat was absolutely inevitable. But even though uh, before this, Mussolini was offering to negotiate peace between Britain and Germany, but while some members of the British war cabinet were interested, um, Churchill would not hear of it. And so after the Germans stunning advance, the Allies were trapped on the beach of Dunkirk, hundreds of thousands of British troops and all their armor and uh, aircraft and vast amounts of vehicles. And the entire force could easily have been captured or destroyed, but Germany was issued a halt order. And as a show of good faith towards his Western tormentors, Adolf Hitler believed the British were more likely to make peace if they could escape with their dignity and their army intact. And so a massive boatlift involving British fishing vessels, ferries across the English Channel uh, back to England, which was spun by the press as a miraculous escape right under Hitler's nose, ignoring the fact that uh, the Blitzkrieg had been ordered to stop and the Panzers were ordered to stay uh, uh, outside of this uh, pocket to allow the Allied troops to escape. And Hitler's generals were telling him this is the wrong decision. And he said, you must understand they've got an empire to maintain. They need their troops. We cannot afford to undermine the British Empire, which has been an important force for good uh, in uh, terms of civilization and so on. And so here's German General von Blumenritt uh, quote. He said, Hitler astonished us by speaking with admiration of the British Empire, of the necessity for its existence, of the civilization Britain had brought to the world. He compared the British Empire with the Catholic Church, saying they were both essential elements of stability in the world. He said that all he wanted from Britain was that Britain should acknowledge Germany's position on the continent. And the return of Germany's colonies, stolen at the end of the First World War, would be desirable, but not essential. He would even offer to support Britain with troops if she had, should ever be involved in difficulties anywhere in her empire. And understanding Britain had the greatest navy and Germany had the greatest army, he is offering German Wehrmacht troops to assist Britain should they need it anywhere in the empire. And with the eyes of the world focused on events in Western Europe, Joseph Stalin continued to expand his evil empire. He moved and invaded Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and the Baltic states, and also invaded uh, part of Romania, Eastern Romania, and next to the Soviet Union. So in just nine months, the Soviet Union had invaded six countries, yet without the slightest bit of condemnation from the Western allies. And so Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Romania, Poland, all invaded by Stalin, and some of this is ignored. Uh, this isn't significant. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. And so the Western globalists had no concern for what the Soviet Union was doing. Obviously, had no concern for the people of Central and Eastern Europe, but were only concerned with destroying Germany. And so after 
Germany's stunning victory in 1940. Benito Mussolini opportunistically declared war in France, which had already been beaten and occupied, and also upon the United Kingdom, who had just been chased out of Europe at Dunkirk. So unlike Hitler's defensive war, Mussolini had a dream of conquest, wanting to restore the Roman Empire in North Africa, and his reckless adventures proved extremely costly to Hitler. It's been said that um, Mussolini was more of a burden than a benefit or an ally to Germany because everything he did seemed to undermine uh, Germany's security. So in August 1940, Italy occupied British Somalia in East Africa. And then in September 1940, Italy invaded Egypt. Uh, and Egypt was occupied by British forces uh, to protect the Suez Canal. So in picking a fight with Britain, Mussolini chewed bit or far more than he could chew with a very unimpressive uh, Italian military. They might have had a lot of machines and a lot of aircraft, but uh, there was no doubt the British land and naval forces uh, were superior and they defeated the Italian adversaries and gave Churchill a potential continental opening to now invade a non-neutral Italy from North Africa, the soft underbelly of Europe, as Churchill liked to call it. So as the fleeing French government collapsed and as Germany entered Paris, which was not even defended, the new government, uh, headed by the World War I hero Marshal Philippe Pétain, who agreed to make peace with Germany. And unlike the brutal Versailles Treaty, the terms of the armistice with France was light, requiring only that Germany would uh, maintain a force in the north to protect against the British invasion of the continent, and uh, for as long as that took, the new French government had its administrative offices in the southern city of Vichy, hence they were called Vichy, France. And other than the strategic occupation north, France remained a sovereign nation. Life in occupied France went on quietly. German soldiers had an excellent reputation for good behavior uh, with the local people. And in fact, there were no known cases of rape or abuse of any woman uh, by the German Wehrmacht throughout the whole time there, which would not be able to be said about the Americans and other allies when they came in, in 1944. But in the Britain, Churchill and the French General Charles de Gaulle fumed over Marshal Pétain's refusal to continue the fight. And Hitler wanted Pétain to ally his country with Germany, but uh, uh, Pétain was particularly frustrated by Mussolini's declaration upon a defeated France. And so he said they couldn't possibly join a German alliance as long as Germany was allied to Italy. And uh, so at this point, interestingly, out comes the uh, World Jewish Congress, June the 24th, 1940, claiming that six million Jews are doomed if Germany wins the war. And again, you keep getting this magic number, six million. It's been coming up since the turn of the previous century, uh, first directed at Russia when Russia was under the Tsar, and now uh, being directed at Germany. And one wonders why, because there wasn't any... Uh, Jewish internment or anything like that at this stage. So where's this narrative coming from? Well, in July 1940, Churchill launched aerial bombardment campaign against German civilians. And the British Royal Air Force was ordered to bomb civilian areas. And obviously, Churchill hoped to provoke a similar response from Hitler so that he and Franklin Delano could point to German bombing of civilians. So in a memo to the Minister of UK Aircraft Production, Churchill wrote, when I look around to see how we can win the war, I can see there's only one path 
We do not have a continental army which can defeat the German military power. There's only one thing that could bring Hitler down, and that is an absolute devastating, exterminating attack by very heavy bombers from this country upon the Nazi homeland. We must be able to overwhelm them by this means, without which I see no way through. And so Churchill ordered the construction of massive four-engine bombers that could carry 10,000 and uh, 14,000 uh, kilograms of bombs in a single aircraft and be able to uh, flatten whole cities with 1,000 bomber raids. And so he was putting massive amount of money into building bombers at a time when uh, Britain didn't have enough fighters to defend itself. So obviously aggression was his main goal. The notorious drunk will bomb German civilian areas seven times before Hitler uh, responded. And so German bombers were under strict orders to limit their attacks to military industrial targets only. And only in September, after the bombing of Berlin on numerous occasions, did Hitler, very foolishly, I believe, um, order as a response of dropping bombs on, on uh, civilian areas in Britain. And then the world press suddenly declared Germany bombed civilians. Of course, one should never sink to the level of one's opponents, but um, this was provoked. As he had done with the orchestrated sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, Winston Churchill again deliberately brought about the deaths of innocent men, women, children on his own side in order to achieve political goals. And uh, that's pretty reprehensible. So in July 20th, 1940, Germany's first bombing attempt of London, they dropped leaflets, peace leaflets, last appeal to reason. And so uh, instead of uh, uh, destructive bombs, which the British were dropping on Berlin, Germany responds with a four-page broadcast containing English language summary of, of Hitler's recent speech before the Reichstag, appeal to reason. In this hour, I feel it to be my duty before my own conscience to appeal once more to reason and common sense in Great Britain as much as anywhere. I consider myself in a position to make this appeal since I'm not the vanquished begging favors, but the victor speaking in the name of reason. I can see no reason why this war must go on. I'm grieved to think of all the sacrifices it will claim. Possibly Mr. Churchill again will brush aside the statement of mine by saying that this is merely born of fear and of doubt in a final victory. In that case, I shall have relieved my conscience in regard to the things to come. Because obviously, one thing you could not claim is that a person with the Iron Cross who had been multiplied times a wounded in battle and uh, decorated for courage in the First World War was not a coward. And uh, the British government responded to this, uh, plea, this plea with mockery, threats, and more bombs. And uh, interestingly, in August 1940, Hitler started to plan to establish a Jewish homeland on the French island of Madagascar. And for centuries, Europeans and Jews obviously had some problems living together uh, because they'd been expelled from so many different countries through the centuries. So Hitler was content to leave them alone and um, let them be resident aliens of Germany. But those who wanted to go to Palestine, he wrote in 1933, the transfer agreement between German government and Zionists to facilitate any Jew who wanted to leave. And about 40% of Germany's Jews immigrated to Palestine with all of their wealth intact from 1933 to 1940. And this explains why Zionists were amongst some of the major financiers of Adolf Hitler uh, in his rise to power because they saw he could help uh, get those Jews who seemed too comfortable in Europe uh, to be willing to move to Palestine to create their state there that they wanted to do. 
So now Adolf Hitler looks at, because the British control Palestine, how about organizing them a homeland on the beautiful island of Madagascar, off the coast of Southern Africa, to resettle one million Jews per year under German protection. And the idea of a Jewish homeland on French-controlled Madagascar had been circulated in Europe since the 1880s, interestingly. But this Madagascar plan had to be scrapped when the British invaded the island in 1942 and took control away from France after the Battle of Madagascar. Again, something else that's not normally in our history books. A Jewish Madagascar, uh, writes uh, M.S. King, would have been a win-win solution for Jews and Europeans, would have spared the poor Palestinians and other Arab nations the horrors they endured after the founding of Israel in 1948, and uh, it would have provided them with a place of safety. So while publicly insisting that American boys will not be going to any foreign wars, Franklin Delano Roosevelt continued to secretly prepare for entry into the globalist world war, and he issued a peacetime uh, conscription act where all males between 26 to 35 had to register for an upcoming draft. Now, this is already in September 1940. And so America's planning its war. Uh, it's been building up armaments throughout the 30s anyway. And the unlucky draftees were told they would serve a 12-month term based in either the Western Hemisphere or on American territory, which they had no such intention, it would seem. And so the, by the summer of 1941, the deceitful FDR, to quote the author, who was planning to trick America into a war by way of provoking Japan, decreed that the terms be lengthened, and outraged draftees protested the broken promises, threatened to desert when their 12 months were up, and most would obey the order and serve beyond the promised October 1941 release date, right up until the surprise attack upon Pearl Harbor, December 1941. The only, the first and only peacetime draft in US history. What a coincidence. Well, we could continue, but this is setting the stage for uh, how the world war panned out. Let me hand back to you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. Yeah, that is a good way, uh, place to leave it. So um, before we go, um, can you let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? My email address is peter at frontline.org.za, uh, which Americans would pronounce ZA, so peter at frontline.org.za, and our website, www.frontlinemissionsa.org. So frontlinemissionsa.org, the SA standing for South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org. You can also find us on Facebook, when Facebook is operational, Frontline Fellowship or Peter Hammond. It'd be good to hear from them. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. It's a fan fascinating study that you're doing on um, Mike King's book really enjoyed you going through it and of course Peter and I'll be back with you next week at the same time I'll of course be back with you tomorrow until then folks I hope you have a wonderful day thank you for listening and bye for now